Okay, uh, our church is, I think, a little bit of a mixture of uh, veteran Christians that have been Christian for a long time, newbie Christians kind of starting out. Maybe there's some of you here that are still trying to figure out whether which one of those you are, are you in or you're not, just kind of figuring things out. Are you seeking or are you a new believer? Um, that's okay. How many of you, I want to see you kind of show hands, how many of you have read through an entire book of the Bible? Like you've read all of Genesis or read or something like that. Okay, a lot of you, a lot of you. How many of you have read through the entire Bible at some point in your life? First verse to last verse. Okay, that's, that's a good number. That's good. All right, if you've been around the Bible long enough and try to read through, not just kind of poke around at your favorite verses, but kind of read through all of what an author has in front of you, I think you'll uh, join me in recognizing that there are sometimes where you're moving along and you're getting it and you're, you're going and you're understanding what's happening and then bam, you hit a verse that just completely doesn't make any sense. You know, you have no idea what this verse means and uh, maybe if you're, you know, behind on your scripture reading, you just kind of pass it by, you don't have time to pull out commentaries or email your pastor or whatever and so you just kind of go forward. But, but once in a while, you get hit with a passage that... Uh, is really tough to understand. Now, some passages are hard because because you understand it. It's hard because it's what it's asking you to do. We don't want to do it. That's what makes it hard. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about verses that you don't even know what it's asking you to do because it's hard to understand what it's saying. Then you compare it with another translation, and people are translating it differently, and you're like, I don't have time to go learn Greek or go learn Hebrew. I don't know what's happening here. And we just kind of pass it by and go, I, I guess that was a weird one, and just kind of move forward so we have one of those today if you couldn't tell already <laughs> we've got one of those today there's two verses that just just seem to intrude into the story of of exodus and when we're faced with those verses uh we don't want to just go meh weird you know and just kind of go go along with our day we want to try to do what we can to wrestle with it so here's what i want to do today okay what i want to do today is give you a couple of basic principles of what to do when you encounter a tough passage besides the lifeline call an expert that you know. I'm talking about on your own, sitting with it, wrestling with it. And of course we need those lifelines and we need commentaries and it's good to have pastors and know guys that are scholars or whatever. That's, those are great privileges. But to sit with the word on your lap and look at it, there's a couple of principles to help you not just go, well, I don't know what that was and just keep going, but to try to Try to figure out why this is here for us. We're going to do that together. Otherwise, this would be a waste of time. Just look at a strange passage. I don't know what it means. Do you? No? Well, let's go have lunch. Uh, don't want to do that. So what we're going to do is use this ex- uh, passage as an example of how to take, how to approach a difficult passage that doesn't make sense and understand why, why did God put this here? You remember when Paul wrote to Timothy and told Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. And it's profitable for teaching, rebuke, training, and righteousness, correction. All Scripture is profitable. What Scripture is Paul talking about when he writes Timothy? The Old Testament. I mean, it includes the New Testament, but mainly Timothy's preaching from the Old Testament in his church. And that would include the passages that we have today. That would include the hard passages. It's profitable. So we don't want to skip them. We just want to do the hard work. So we're going to look at three basic principles of how to approach a tough passage. We ready? Okay, good. Let's go to Exodus chapter 4. You remember Moses uh, was just finishing up his burning bush conversation, right? The, this bush is burning but not burning. 
and that catches his attention, and he walks up to it and has to take his sandals off because it's holy ground, and, and God tells him, you're going to deliver the people. Now, who am I to do that? Well, because I'm calling you. It's, I'm the one who's going to call you. Well, what am I going to say? Here's what you say. Well, I sent somebody else, and then God gets upset and tells him, you're going to go with Aaron. Here's three signs that you can go and give to them. They'll believe you. They will believe you. That's the promise. So Moses first seeks permission from his father-in-law, not because he wouldn't do it if his father-in-law didn't like it, but it's, it's uh, you know, the cultural nice thing to do. Verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So far, so good, right? He just asks his father-in-law for permission. His father-in-law blesses him, go. And then God tells Moses, those people that were trying to kill you when you fled 40 years ago, don't worry about it. Go into the land. Those people are dead. Just take your staff. You got this. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, if I were you, I'd be sitting there going, that must be the difficult passage. Because one of the number one questions I ever get asked is, what is up with God hardening Pharaoh's heart? That doesn't seem fair. Here's what's not going to seem fair. We're not going to go there today. Okay? That's next week. So come on back next week and we'll unpack what that means that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because it's not just here in this verse, but that becomes a punctuation throughout all of the ten plagues that God is going to unleash on Egypt. So he goes with God's mission to go up to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. Let them go or I'll kill your firstborn son. That's not that hard to understand. Well, what's hard to understand? 24 to 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. God let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And then verse 27 is kind of like, Anyway, Lord said to Aaron, like, <laughs> like the story just continues. You know? So anyway, remember Aaron? Yeah, so he, you know, he starts speaking to Aaron and he meets Moses and they, they embrace and they make, you know, miss each other and it goes back to a normal story what in the world is going on moses i'm going to send you to go deliver this message then we get a verse by the way god was about to kill moses until zipporah quick took a knife and circumcised her son and put the foreskin on his feet and then said a blood groom blood you know bridegroom whatever the word is translated it's different in different translations right and then and then god said okay back to back to normal scheduled programming you know what is going on? So I wrestled last week. I was going to attach this to the passage that we preached last week, and I thought, this is a little too different. It takes too much unpacking, okay? And, and I didn't want us to be here for three hours in one sermon. So I wanted to have one Sunday where we unpack this together. 
Now, before we unpack it, I'm going to give you the three principles. So if you want to learn how to approach difficult passages, write these three principles down. Is it more complex than just three principles? Sure, just like everything. Nothing is ever really broken down into three principles. But it's helpful to us to have a couple things that we can keep in mind to go, okay, let me at least check these off. All right? Here are the three principles. This is a weird passage. Here's the three principles. One, recognize what we don't know for certain. Let's just recognize what we don't know for certain and be okay with that. If God wanted us to know it for certain, he would have made it certain. So the things that we don't know for certain, that's okay. It might bother you. You might wonder what it really was. You might, it might become your top, and your, it might make your top five questions. You're going to ask Moses in heaven, you know, one day. That's fine. That can be your little hobby on the side. But don't let it eat you up. Don't let it bother you. And don't let it keep you from understanding the path. Right? Just recognize what you don't know for certain. Number two, recognize what you do know for certain. Right? There are things here that we do know for certain, even if it's surrounded by a lot of things that we have no idea what they are. Or, or we have a couple options, but we're not sure which one it is. So first, recognize what we don't know. Second, jot down what you do know. And then third, based on the things that we do know, discover the meaning of the passage. Now that sounds obvious, but I just want to take a second to massage that for a moment. Because there are um, strains of Christianity that don't believe that there is a meaning in a passage, and they think that there's many meanings in a passage. Well, it might mean that for you, but it doesn't mean that for me. These are the slippery Christians. You can never pin them with a verse. You know, you're not supposed to be doing that because the verse says this. Yeah, but it means that for you. It doesn't mean that for me. You know, they can dodge whatever they feel with because there's not just one meaning. It's whatever meaning you bring to the text. And that doesn't really make sense. If this is going to be profitable for us for correction, then we have to be willing to be corrected. By I can never be corrected by something that I'm, I'm bringing the meaning to it. I'm the one that decides what it means. I can never be corrected then. It's going to correct me because Scripture is the ruler and I'm the thing that's crooked and me need to be made straight by matching what the ruler says an inch is, not what I think is an inch, right? So that's how Scripture operates. There's one meaning, not three meanings, 300 meanings, three million meanings. There's one meaning. The passage is there for the purpose of communicating one meaning. Now, that one meaning can be applied many different ways. It can be applied in marriage. It can be applied in parenting. It could be applied in, uh, applied in being a, a leader at your company, an employer. It could be applied um, to evangelism. It could, passages can be applied in many different ways, but what are you applying in those different scenarios? You're applying one meaning. So one meaning, not many meanings. And there are many applications, but not any applications. You can't just apply it to any old thing you want. Why? Because it depends on the meaning, right? So what we're after is, why did Moses write this? Why is this here? You know, it, it, it's not like he just was cutting, cutting and pasting stuff in his Word document, and oops, he pasted something from a text message that it doesn't make sense to, like when you send something to someone, I do it all the time. Da-da-da-da-da, send. And then I go, oops, wrong, wrong recipient, that wasn't for you. It's really awkward when I'm totally blasting the person, you know, and I, I didn't think they were going to hear it. No, I don't do that. Right? So he's not just kind of uh, mixing up stuff, a bunch of post-it notes on his desk. He's methodical, intentional about what he's revealing, about how things transpired. When God called me to go deliver Egypt, uh, uh, Israel from Egypt, here's what happened. There was a situation at the burning bush. He told me exactly what to say. He gave me these signs. 
Then he told me exactly what to tell Pharaoh about killing the firstborn son. And then Zipporah saved my life. Then I was ready to go. So this has to be here, and this is here for a reason. So we're going to walk through those three steps. What do we not know for certain? Okay, And this can kind of bug us, but there are things that we're not totally sure of. And the first thing that we're not completely sure of is the word him. Who does it, who's him? Okay. Now some of your Bibles might say Moses there, but if you're reading it, following along in the ESV, it says, uh, verse 24, at a lodging place on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now we might assume that's Moses, uh, but some commentators think maybe it's not Moses and maybe it's his son that was going to be put to death, his son being Gershom. Right? So there's a couple options, and those, those are probably the only two options. Him is probably not, you know, Jethro or Aaron or something. It's, it's got to be either Moses or the kid getting circumcised, which was Gershom. Maybe it was Moses. I mean, the whole story is about Moses. Moses is the one that's the center of the attention. Moses is the one that's writing this. Moses is the one that just finished the conversation with the burning bush. Moses is just the one that got the message to deliver to Pharaoh. Who else is him going to be, right? So uh, it could just be you know, understood to be Moses. The other thing that makes me think, you know, maybe it was Moses was that in this culture, the father would, would administer the circumcision, and here Zipporah's got to jump in and do it. Uh, somehow she's recognizing that Moses is about to die, right? She probably doesn't see an angel of death that has Moses in a stranglehold. She probably sees some physical, he's having a seizure, or he's got a fever and he's lying in bed, and she's seen it before where people can't come back from this disease and they're dying. But somehow she knows that it's the Lord's hand, that this is divine, not demonic, that this is physical, not spiritual. Moses is about to die, and she's got to spring into action to get things right with God because Yahweh is going to kill my husband. So she sees something about him, and maybe he's to the point where he's incapacitated and unable to fix it himself, and so therefore Zipporah has to jump in. That makes sense. I think that's plausible. The other thing is that when she performs a circumcision and she says, what does she call him? Verse 25, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. If we understand it to mean bridegroom, it can't be the son because her groom is Moses, right? That's, pre- that's pretty obvious. But you'll see there that uh, it says him in the beginning, and then it says uh, if you're reading the ESV, then Zipporah took a flint and cut her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it, and then there's like a little number there. Okay, And if you look at the bottom of the page in wee little font that most of us probably can't read without help, okay, it says, Psst. it doesn't actually say Moses, it says his. In other words, we don't know that's Moses. Could have been Gershom. You know? In the Hebrew, it just says him, his. It doesn't have names. And so ESV translators are going, look, it was most likely Moses. Let's just put Moses there so people aren't confused. Who's getting cut? Who's getting healed? Who's, who's dying? You know, let's just lay it out for people. But it doesn't say it. So some people say, look, I think it's Gershom. I think God is going to kill Gershom. God is going to kill the baby, and Zipporah saves the life of the baby. What about bridegroom? Well, the word bridegroom really is blood covenant relative or a covenant relative of blood it could have been anything that same word is used for father-in-laws mothers-in-laws brothers-in-laws that there's some kind of covenant that we've struck together by blood and now we're related because of that blood 
covenant that we have. Now we're related through covenant and not just some other means. So it doesn't have to be a groom. And then some people say, remember what this is coming right on the heels of. God tells Moses, go tell Pharaoh, go tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let her go or I'll kill your firstborn son. And it's possible that God is basically telling Moses, you can't go and give him a message like that when your own firstborn son isn't covered. Possible. So there's the two options. Either Moses is about to die, God is going to kill Moses because Moses failed to circumcise his son. Moses is dying, Zipporah jumps into action and does the circumcision. Option two, Gershom is about to be killed because he's the firstborn son and God is going to say you can't deliver a message that you're not living up to and he's going to kill Gershom and Moses just kind of, you know, he's, he's just worried about, is my hand going to not be leprous anymore when I pull it out of my jacket? Is that staff going to actually turn into a serpent when I throw it down? He's thinking about it. He's nervous. He's distracted. He's being disobedient. And Zipporah jumps into action out of faith. Does the circumcision and fixes the situation. And obviously, there's cultural things that we're not completely sure of. You know, when she touches it to the feet and you know, smearing the blood and this kind of thing. We're not exactly sure what that means, but we can be probably pretty certain that she, she's, she's saying, look, I did it, and it's covering him, right? Right, God? It covers him, and she's holding it there, like, right? And that's what she's communicating, and then God relents. Yep, you're good, right? Okay. So the things we're not know, know for sure, was it Gershom? Was it Moses? Why did Zipporah do it? Why didn't Moses do it? As a Gideon, uh, as a Midianite, did uh, Zipporah really fully understand circumcision or, you know, we don't know. That's why it's three verses, not three chapters. There's not a lot of details there, okay? And it's fun to ask those questions. We're responsible, responsible students of Scripture to kind of dig and try to unpack what, what's going on there. But if we don't know them, then it must mean we don't have to know them to get to the meaning. So what are the things that we do actually know? Well, we do actually know that there was negligence here. <clears throat> something was outstanding. Something was an outstanding debt. Something was not done that was supposed to be done, and because it wasn't done, God was going to inflict death, either on Moses or Gershom, one of the two. But death was going to happen because God said, there's, there's something not right between us, and you can't go represent me and deliver a message on my behalf if, we're, if it's not even on my behalf. You're not even operating on my behalf. Where's, there's still a separation between us. And so we know that for sure, that that was the issue, that was the problem, and we know that the solution was circumcision. We know that the solution was circumcision and that it has to do with becoming a blood covenant relative, that you're in a family and that family is united through a bloody covenant and you're either in that family or out of that family. And in this case, to be in that family required circumcision for males. So these are the kind of things that we know for certain. I want to give a little bit of quick background on what circumcision is. And to do that, we're going to look at Genesis 17. You can turn there or we're going to have it up here on the screen. But Genesis 17, you'll remember that this was a part of God's covenant with Abraham. I'm going to have, you're going to have a people through you. I'm going to make a nation through you. And the whole world is going to be blessed through your, through your seed. <clears throat> so here we are, Genesis 17 little background on circumcision, what it is, why, why it's there, why it's important. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, you and your seed, after you throughout the, their generations. This is my covenant, 
which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He's basically saying, if you don't do some cutting, I'm going to do some cutting. I'll cut you off from my people. In order for your people, your offspring, to be in good standing with me, in a covenant relationship with me, and we understand covenant, it's not like a contract, okay? It's not, look, I do this, you do that, and as long as both of us are doing this, we'll just keep the contract going. That's not a covenant. God's covenant with Abraham was, I'm going to do something through your seed, and that's it. There, there wasn't another side, you know, except you have to recognize the sign of that covenant. You and all those who were born after you, and the sign of that covenant was circumcision. Okay? And if you didn't do it, it wasn't like you were a lower tier. You were kind of in half good standing with God. You're in or you're out. You're cut off or you're in because of this sign of being in with God. Now, Signs in the Old Testament weren't just random. It's not like God is like, ah, oh, let me pick a sign. Ah, uh, cut a foreskin. Like, that's weird, right? That's weird. Not, it's not weird if it's related to what it's signifying, to what it's signifying, okay? You remember God's covenant with Noah? I'm never going to flood the world again. And then he put a sign that he's not going to flood the world again. What is the sign? The rainbow. The sign wasn't a rabbit, Right? What is a rainbow? A rainbow has to do with this effect that we see after rain. And so rain comes, it's dark, it's gloomy, maybe there's lightning, we're all kind of sad, we're like, "Mm, kind of a gloomy day, and then pow, a rainbow comes out. And how do you feel about that? Oh, it feels nice, right? That's why God made it the rainbow, because he he wants you to think of judgment, be reminded of judgment, but don't be scared of judgment if you know what the rainbow means, that God is the judge, and if you know him, you're in, good, you're in a good place. I mean, this is the kind of thing he's communicating to Noah. So he doesn't pull signs out of left field. The sign of the covenant always relates to what the covenant means. Now, why would it be circumcision of a foreskin? It's, it's bloody. It's, it's, it's intimate. I mean, it's weird, right? Because the covenant promise was that Abraham, through your seed or through your offspring, will come a one that will bless the entire world that I promised in Genesis 3.15 who will defeat the serpent. So he made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that a seed would come through the woman. And then in Abraham, he's making it more specific, a specific people through whom that seed will come to crush the head of the serpent. And so what God is communicating to Abraham is this seed is going to continue, the promise is going to continue from generation to generation. And in recognition of that promise, in relation to the idea of seed going to seed, circumcision is an appropriate sign. So in effect, not performing a circumcision is to step back from that promise of that seed. I don't need that promise. I don't need the 
the serpent crusher. I can handle the serpent on my own. Just fine, thanks. Just give me other stuff, God. I don't need the ultimate solution. I just need some other things from you. And God is saying, our relationship is never going to be predicated on stuff that I do for you. Our relationship is going to be predicated on me solving the ultimate problem that you have. It's not your job. It's not your rocky marriage. It's not the fact you need a new car. It's not your debt. Your ultimate need is to be reconciled with me and to escape the bondage to Satan. That's your ultimate need. So when we come to God, we recognize that's our ultimate need and that we need to have a covenant with God that protects us. So we know that that's the background to what's happening here in Exodus chapter 4. And he's writing this to Jews that would have read Genesis first. These five books go together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are all one book. They called it the Torah. It's the law. So they have Genesis in the background in their minds. And they're like, okay, God chooses Moses. Moses gets a burning bush. Moses gets signs. He gets miracles. Moses gets a family. Moses gets powers. You know, Moses gets all this stuff. And Moses is trying to continue, uh, insert this by saying, that stuff wasn't good enough. He was going to kill me. Or he was going to kill my son if I didn't get the covenant with God part right. There's different theories. This bleeds back into the things that we don't know. Why didn't he circumcise him? We don't know. There's some evidence that Egyptians had a certain kind of circumcision. Maybe Moses thought that would have been good enough. There's some evidence that the Midianites did their own kind of circumcision. Maybe that kind of circumcision wasn't good enough. It was partial or something like that. We're not sure. We don't know. He forgot. I don't know. What do we do know? What do we know? What we do know is that he didn't do it. And so he failed the Genesis 17 test. Every seed after you, Abraham, has to do it or I'll cut them off. Moses didn't do it. He was going to be cut off. And he was going to die for heading out to represent God and not actually be representing God because he's not in a covenant relationship with him or that covenant relationship isn't made right yet. Okay, That's what we do know. Eventually in heaven, we can ask questions and fill in the details. But we're given the details that are enough to know what's happening here, that there needs to be this covenant relationship and it wasn't right. We also know that this covenant wasn't just important because God randomly wanted it to be important. We know that this covenant is important because this is how God is solving the problem of the world. The problem of the world is Genesis 3, the fall and what happened with Satan. God created a promise, gave man a promise that he was going to deal with it in this seed. And so this covenant isn't just random. This covenant is God unpacking, unfolding history, how he's going to deal with this problem. And Moses, you have to be either in or you're out. So for Moses to be in, he needed this to happen. And why did Zipporah step up? I don't know. Have you ever been a complete idiot and then your wife saves you? I have. So we can be thankful that Zipporah stepped up and did what she was supposed to do, even though she probably had less knowledge of what she was supposed to do than Moses, who grew up as a Hebrew. She operated on the knowledge that she had and operated in faith that this cutting of the foreskin and applying it to the son would save him, or to Moses would save him. And God honored it because God relented. God moved, pulled back and did not 
visit death upon either Moses or Gerson. So, what do we see here? We see a seriousness and an urgency related to God's requirements for a covenant relationship. We see a seriousness and an urgency related to God's requirements for a covenant relationship. There was no time. There was no, like, well, let's sit around and think about this a little bit. I don't know. I don't know. You, you can almost see Zipporah springing into action and grabbing the nearest flint knife that they had in the house, okay, and getting to work. No, no anesthetic prep. <laughs> it's just this. It's that or die. It's that or die. It's going to hurt. It's going to cut. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be messy. But it's that or die. God doesn't play around. He's not kind of visiting Moses with the sniffles, assuming it's Moses. Now, he's, not, he's not kind of just, Moses just kind of has the mumps, right? Something, you know, feverish or he's going to die and be cut off from God's plan of redemption. So there's an urgency there. This, this, isn't, this isn't time to piddle around. It's time to grab the knife and apply the sign of the covenant in which you are covered. Outside of that sign, you're not covered. It might seem harsh. We need to recognize God is the source of life. Right? We breathe because God breathed life in us. God is life. There is no life outside of God. God creates life, and God is the one who sustains life through Christ. Therefore, if we are cut off from God and we're cut off from Christ, we're, we're just on borrowed breath. We're, we're just on every breath that we breathe is a mercy breath. It's by God's grace. Because life and breath belongs to him, and you're stealing it. We're arrogant when we go, why would God visit death on anyone? The real question is, why is anyone alive? When we operate against a holy God by doing unholy things and expecting him to hook us up for it. No, 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 no. No. You can be Moses himself and die. Because it doesn't matter about your education. It doesn't matter what your calling is. It doesn't matter how willing you are to perform great miracles for God. If you're not covered by the sign of the covenant, you're cut off. And that's a dangerous place. Here's a guy who's not a pagan. It's not like he's worshiping idols. He's... He's going along and being, being a Hebrew. He's writing, he's writing Scripture. He's the first writer of Scripture about to die because calling is not enough. So God is going to visit death on him because of the covenant. And the covenant sign needs to be there, period. doesn't matter what your background is. doesn't matter how many good things you do during the week, if you don't have that covenant sign covering you, you're out. And out means death. Jesus made this so clear. Didn't Jesus made this so clear. It, it's, it's so hard for me to hear people like, well, Jesus didn't teach that. Jesus, I'm about Jesus, not the Old Testament God. I like Jesus. Jesus, you know, he just likes to cuddle everybody. We know more about the reality of hell because of Jesus' words than any other part of the Bible. Weeping, gnashing of teeth, those are Jesus' words. 
you know, the branches getting cut off, bundled up, and thrown in a fire, or thrown into outer darkness, all Jesus' words. I was looking today th- for verses about the second coming of Christ, and I, and I couldn't find one that was about his second coming that didn't have that warning of not being ready for it. So there should be an urgency in us. If you're not sure, if you're not sure you're in the covenant, you need to get sure. Stop banking on Monday coming, right? Stop banking on Sunday being finished all the way. Does that mean Jesus is going to come back tonight? He he can do whatever he wants. But you might go to him before he comes to you. You don't know how long your life is. You don't know what's going to happen, what disease you could catch, what car accident awaits you, what storm. What any, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, make you nervous. Well, I, I take that back because I think that's what Jesus did. He wanted people to understand the frailty of their life, how fleeting it is, and that they need to be ready to meet him. And when we see a passage like this, we go, oh, my goodness. Are we importing, you know, Jesus coming back or importing the gospel in here? No. What was the covenant about? Why was it a bloody covenant? Because blood has to be spilt for you to be in the covenant, and the blood that is spilt is a sign that a seed is coming, and you need to have, place your faith in that coming seed. Now, we look back to the seed who came, who's Jesus Christ. And just like we sang earlier, there's no other name by which we may be saved. So that sign of the covenant points to Christ. So we don't leave here and go buy flint knives. We leave here and believe the gospel. Recognize that Jesus Christ is our only hope. And we cling to him in repentance and faith, and that's how we're in the covenant. That's how we're in. If anyone ever asks you, how do you know you're going to heaven? How do you know? How do you know you're going to heaven? And you start out with stuff that you do, you you don't get how the covenant works. You know, when we take communion, which we'll be doing next week, and we have that broken bread and that, that juice and the cup, and it represents his broken body and his spilled blood, what are we proclaiming there? Well, we're proclaiming, is the sign of this new covenant that Christ established in his blood. That his body was broken when mine should have been, his blood was spilt when my blood should have been spilt, and he's my substitute, and he satisfied the wrath of God, the just and right and perfect and holy wrath of God, in order for me to receive the love of God. That's the gospel. And it's urgent. I hope no one in here is still trying to figure out their lives first so that then they can come to Christ. Let me finish these habits first, and then I'll come to Christ. Let me get my life fixed up, and then I'll come to Christ. You've got it wrong, because you can't fix it up, and neither can I. We come to Christ, and then we let him get to work and do the surgery that needs to happen in our lives. So we look at this passage, we see this extreme urgency with Zipporah jumping into action. And I think maybe if there's anyone in a, here among us today that we don't know for sure, you need to spring into action. Except in this case, your wife can't do it for you. Or your mom. Or your cousin. Or your grandma. It doesn't matter how spiritual they are. You need to embrace the sign of the covenant yourself. And place your faith in Jesus Christ. So this text teaches us that God is serious about his covenant and we need to be urgent about his covenant. What this passage teaches us is that God has a requirement, a demand that must be met to be in a relationship with him. And we can't meet that demand. So what we do 
to meet that requirement is place our faith in Jesus Christ who has perfectly met all the demands. But it needs to be a decision we make now, 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 not later, not tomorrow, not next day, not next week. It's urgent. So here's the meaning. Moses needed to be right with God to be used of God. And the same is true for us. You want God to use you? You want to be in a relationship with God? Good standing with God? Then you need to be right with him. And the only way to be right with him is to know Christ. Period. I want to ask you to pray with me as we get ready to close in a song of worship. Father, we're 